before we get into this particular beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Greatest sermon ever preached. Brad kicked us off last week uh, with uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, and I think he, I was behind here, so I didn't catch everything, but I'm pretty sure he gave me a hard time about my sermons. Um, I think they're pretty spectacular, but probably not as good as Jesus's, so that's okay. Um, I don't know if you've ever sat and thought, wouldn't it be great if Jesus could just show up himself and preach the sermon today? I know I do, every Sunday. Um, But don't miss the fact that he does. Uh, If we're preaching his words, he's preaching to us every Sunday. And this series allows us an opportunity to actually hear one of the few full recorded sermons that Jesus himself gave from his lips. We have the testimony of his apostles, also inspired by his spirit. But we get to dig into three chapters in Matthew in the coming weeks of the greatest sermon ever. It's Jesus's sermon. And I was kind of hoping the lights would stay out because I thought it'd be a little bit closer to the actual. If you've ever had a privilege of going to Israel, I know there's a lot going on there right now, but you go and up in Capernaum at the north side of the, the Sea of Galilee where Peter's little fishing business and house was. There's a hill where they think it might have been and all that kind of stuff. And when you hear Mount in Scripture, never think of like Alberta. Think of like uh, uh, hills somewhere. They're not mountains. They're more like hills. And, you know, thinking of acoustics, it says that Jesus came and he sat down and he began to speak. He probably would have actually, reverse of what we have here, would have been sitting down at the low parts, the people up on the hill, because that's the way when you didn't have the amplification, it would have gone up. So I was fully ready to make you guys all come up here and I was going to come down here. But we won't do that today because the microphone's working. And so here we go. But we want to jump into this message, to this sermon And I want to talk for just a few minutes about the Sermon on the Mount. You guys know me. You know I'm not going to jump straight into it. So just hang with me because there's a couple things I think are really important contextually for us to understand before we really dig in. And so with that, you know, just to ask the question, why is this sermon so important? Why would I or Brad or anybody else get up and go, hey, most important sermon ever? Because within this sermon... Jesus is going to plant seeds for every single thing that he will teach and do in his life and his ministry, and for everything that we still need today to follow Christ. It's a big deal. And I don't know about you, maybe you've memorized it and you can say the the blessed R's and all the fun things, but have you stopped to let it soak in? I mean, you read through this. If I read Matthew 5 through 7, I could probably read Jesus' sermon in 10 minutes. And you're all going, so why don't you do that, Pastor? Well, just for the record, Jesus didn't do it in 10 minutes. We're getting Matthew's abbreviation probably of an all-day sermon for all the people up the mount and all the things that were happening. But this is a really, really important sermon. We started last week, and the beginning of this sermon is the section called the Beatitudes. Matthew didn't come up with that word. The church came up with that. It's a Latin word for blessing that they've brought in, and it fits. Blessed are the blessed ours, as I always think of them. And the idea that, uh, I think Brad even said this last week, that word 
blessed is really interesting because it really just means happy. But the problem is we have so much baggage in our culture with the word happy. So let me say it this way. Blessed in this context means happiness the way God defines happiness. Happiness in our human nature, happiness in our human culture typically means favorable circumstances or doing what you want or what you think is right. And nowadays, I think it's interesting, it's what you feel is right, what you feel is good. Not the big shift. Those of us who are older, who are more grown up in the modern world, it was very much about what do we think. We've now moved to what do we feel. In either case, none of the things that we think or feel seem to bring the life that we're looking for. The happiness that everybody's going for is continually elusive, and you do the things, and it just is always out of reach. And Jesus is going to give us a message about how happiness actually works. It's a big deal. And it's going to get really awkward if you're still in kind of a worldly idea or your own personal ideas of what happiness brings when Jesus says, you're going to be happy when you're persecuted. You're going to be so happy when I make you do stuff you don't want to do. That gets awkward, doesn't it? You're going to be happy when you do good things for other people and they throw it back in your face. It's backwards. But Jesus is telling us what will actually make us happy. And here's a little spoiler. It's probably almost always going to be the opposite of what you think it is. That's what Jesus is getting at. Matthew 8, 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? It's what Jesus is getting at when he says, hey, listen, if you want to be first, be last. Or if you want to be great, become everybody's slave. Pardon? (laughs) God's kingdom will always be counter-cultural to ours. Um, I've had to borrow people's trailers recently. Um, You know, like you put your car and you have the hitch and you put the little trailer in the back. I like to pride myself. I'm a pretty good driver. I I think I'm a really good driver. Um, My family might disagree, but just don't ask them. But I've driven lots of large vehicles and I'm like, hey, I can back that bad boy into like really tight spots and not like kill people or run over things. I'm like, all right. What is it when I put a tiny little car with a tiny little trailer that has a little hitch and I go backwards and it's so humiliating? Anybody else? Have you tried this? Maybe you've just never tried it because it's like, "Mm, no, thank you. It's completely backwards to everything in your instincts. If you want to go this way, you go that way. And it's like, but like whatever. And why is every time I try to back it up, there's always someone watching? And so you're going back and they go, Sandiford, straight. I am. I am going straight. Well, you're like, whatever. This, I was thinking about this as I was just praying through this. I go, this is how it feels sometimes when we follow Christ. It's like, I'm going that way. Then why does the trailer keep going off the opposite side? What's going on? It's countercultural. It feels wrong. It feels backwards. Why when I turn the wheel, it doesn't go the right way? from what I'm used to. 
It's countercultural, the way of Christ. And here's a little discernment hint in your discipleship. Whatever comes naturally to you, just do the opposite. That's kind of how it works in the kingdom of God. That's not always true. Sometimes we're actually walking with Christ and we're in the right space, but most of the time. This sermon from Matthew 5 to Matthew chapter 7 is a manifesto of sorts from Christ. And it's the first and only manifesto that actually works. It's the basis of this backwards or seemingly backwards way of Christ. But in doing what seems so backward and unnatural to our human minds and wills and cultures, we find life and life abundantly as Christ has promised. We realize it's actually us who are backwards. And I think in these backwards things of Christ that seem so unnatural, we are going to find a deeper and truer understanding of what mental health is, what spiritual health is, what emotional health is. And if you are not greatly disturbed or offended at some point in this sermon series, something's wrong. Either I'm doing it wrong or you're doing it wrong, or maybe both. But something's going to be wrong because I'm just telling you, if you're not catching the message, it's going to be opposite of what you think. It will confront. It will offend at times. And I just got to say one more thing and preface, and then I promise we'll jump in here. When we talk about this idea of a countercultural way of Christ, I've been talking more how we receive internally for our own life, for our own discipleship and following Christ, but just a word on what this means as we think about participating in other people's discipleship. There's going to be always, well, I would say a lot of times, especially for some of us, depending on our bents and our gifts and different things, a temptation to downplay the difficult backward commands of Christ. And the enemy is really good. And this often comes from a great heart, a heart that genuinely cares for other people, wants them to experience the good news of Jesus Christ. But the enemy slips in and it makes it like, I, you know, I'm going to just soften this one a little bit. That's going to be hard for people, especially outside the context to grasp. I'm just going to soften that a little bit. Can I just encourage all of us, me included, when we downplay, when we fudge a little bit, when we, you know, soften the backwards commands of Christ, we're actually robbing that person of true life. And so just something for us to think about as we go through this. It's so backwards. <laughs> the way of Christ is to deny the way I think it should be, and do it his way, to follow him. That is Jesus' number one command. If you're going to follow me, you have to do it my way, not yours. And that is where we find life. When we focus on the difficult commands of Christ, he is the one who supernaturally fulfills his promises around those commands. 
Think about it. It's all the way back to the beginning. Abraham and Isaac, right? What's the promise of God to Abraham? Hey, Abraham, you're old. Your wife's old. She's already passed all the stuff. We all know scientifically, physically, it's not possible for her to have a child. But I'm going to give you a miracle child. And he does. Now, it took a while, but they got there. He gets the baby. The baby grows up, and then God goes, hey, you know how I promised you, Abraham, that you're going to have like so many descendants, it'll be like the stars of the sky, and through all of your descendants, all the world's going to be blessed. He's talking about Jesus there. And then he goes, now, take your little miracle child and go put him on an altar and sacrifice him. There's a lot to that. That's not normal for Jesus or God, Father, all the, you know, it's not normal, but he's doing something here. So the promise is, I'm going to give you descendants like the stars of the sky. The command is, kill the one kid who can make that happen. Hello. That doesn't make sense. Like, what's happening? And what is Abraham's faith? Abraham's faith at the end of the New Testament says we're all supposed to have the same faith that Abraham has. His faith was this. I am going to obey the crazy backwards, does not make sense at a human level, command of God. And I will believe and trust that God himself will supernaturally still accomplish what he said he would do. You catch that? Fast forward to the New Testament. What is the promise and the command of Jesus Christ for us and for the church? The promise is this, I will build my church. And nothing is going to get in the way of that. What's the command? Hey, go tell people, to do things that they don't want to do. And that's how you're supposed to call them to me. Hello. (laughs) Here we go again. It doesn't make sense, does it? But this is the faith. That if I obey the concrete command of Christ in my life and in the call to other people to follow Christ, I am trusting that Jesus will supernaturally take that call and accomplish what he said he would do, build his church. It doesn't make sense on a human level to ask people, hey, listen, you know what you think works? Do you know all the things you think make you happy? Do you know all the things? Could you just let those go because they're wrong? And could you do it completely different the way Jesus wants you to? And if you do that, you'll actually be happy. On a human level, we all know that's not going to work. But we're not talking on a human level, are we? Because the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual forces. And we are trusting that he will supernaturally do what he has promised to do. Catching that? Are we together on that? So here you go. Enough preamble. Let's jump in. Let's talk about it. Um, Last week... We talked about blessed are the poor, Matthew 5, 3. Brad, remind us of that counterintuitive nature. Uh, Those who can own and recognize they're spiritually poor are the ones who become rich. If you remember in our spiritual care focus, we talked about this. It's those who thought that they were already good to go spiritually that were poor. This is the backwards. They're the ones who are sick. Remember Jesus said, hey, to the, to the Pharisees, the guys who are experts in the Bible, hey, you guys have got it all together. And he's just being kind of sarcastic or ironic. He's like, no, you're good. You're healthy. It's fine. It's the, it's the, the poor here, the, the unhealthy the, that, that need the doctor and the physician. And his sarcasm there is like, actually, you're the ones who are sick because you think you've got it together. You don't. 
And so we talked about that last week, and we're going to pick up now Matthew 5. Let's just go ahead and read that together. We'll start in verse 1. Matthew 5, 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And verse 4, our verse for the day, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will, will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. John Stott, old theologian, said it this way, happy are the unhappy. How on earth does that fit? Uh, this idea of mourning that Jesus throws out has been translated in two different ways over the past couple thousand years, digging into it and different things. The original uh, word for mourn here, to be sad, to grieve, sorrow, to weep for, what you would think when you hear the word mourn, it all fits. It can be in relation to a painful event or in the fuller context, a person's condition. Scripture actually talks about mourning in two different ways. There's a mourning of loss, which is what we typically think of when we hear the word mourn. But it also can mean mourning over sin. 2 Corinthians 12, 21, Paul uses this word to say that he fears that he will be grieved by other people's sin. Ephesians 4.30, he commands us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. So all that to say, there's two primary ways that this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, can be understood. It's mourning sin or mourning loss. I happen to think it's both. Jesus isn't super specific. He just says, blessed are those who mourn. We'll talk about that, but let's start with this, those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn sin. Psalm 119, 136. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because your law is not obeyed. Sin. Do we take that seriously? What was the last time you mourned and grieved and wept over your sin? That is not a really popular thing to talk about in our culture. I don't know if it ever has been. I think it gets even more offensive nowadays. But speaking to fellow followers of Jesus Christ, do we realize what is at stake when we do not obey Christ's words and commands? Because friends, we are literally talking life and death. I mean, we're literally talking life and death in the sense that, you know, we think about like to completely reject the word and the good news of Jesus Christ is to spend life without Christ. Outside of what actually brings life. But bring it in. I mean, on so many levels. When Jesus says, I've come to give you life, even as a follower of Christ, as I disobey what he wants, 
I'm actually choosing to do things in a way that won't bring me what I want. There's a death there. I want to be so careful. You know that famous sermon from the old Puritan preacher, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Everybody was so freaked out by the end. It's like having to do a whole extra counseling session. I mean, it's serious stuff. It's serious stuff. But I want to be careful here that we're not seeing it seriously in the wrong way. I think this idea has been used wrongly in the lives of disciples to get people into an unhealthy and unholy state of condemnation. An unholy version of guilt and sorrow. Shame. Which is a total contradiction to the gospel. So how do we understand that? This is where Paul's really helpful. Romans 7, I think I've got this one. We good? We up? Yeah, I've got this one on the screen, I believe. Romans 7, 21. This is Paul talking. So I find this law at work in me. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's word, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. You know, this is the passage he's saying before this. He's like, man, I know the right thing to do. I want to do it, but I don't. And then I do the thing that I don't want to do. And, I do and he's going back and forth and just talking about this internal conflict. And you see the grief and you see the sorrow and you see the mourning. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? He doesn't finish there though, does he? Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is why Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sin, was buried and rose again and defeated the death that comes from sin. 2 Corinthians 7, though, I find most helpful. How do you parse through? Because I've just thrown something out. There's an unholy guilt, an unholy condemnation. Hopefully you're asking the question, is there a holy guilt? Paul talks about the 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. And just quick context. This is a letter to the elders of the church in Corinth that we don't have. He refers to it. We don't have it in the Bible. Somewhere in this has happened that there's a couple of people or a couple of parties in the church who are in a big fight They're not getting along, and Paul writes a letter to them and says, do your job, elders. You are not pushing these people to reconcile because that's what the gospel and that's what church and that's what discipleship is about. And so he sends a really harsh letter, and earlier in 2 Corinthians, he goes, hey, I know I hurt you with my letter. It was pretty strong. But now here's where he picks up because those elders took that and they did what the Lord was asking them to, and they've worked, and God is doing some cool stuff. And here's where he picks up. Verse 9, Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. 
For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow, this is huge, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Godly sorrow leads to life. Worldly sorrow leads to death. How do you know the difference? Because that's a really big difference. How do we discern that? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm still working that one out. But a few thoughts. A few thoughts. There's a godly sorrow that works in us good. If you are being pushed by the exhortation that's in your own head, or maybe from fellow believers, to deal with an issue in a way that pushes you further into condemnation and shame and guilt that paralyzes you and keeps you from moving, that's called death. But if there is a push and an exhortation that comes with grace, as hard as it might be, that moves you to be obedient, it will bring life. Now we need discernment all around that. Sometimes people are coming from that place and we receive it from the wrong place because we're just having a hard time. It's a lot of discernment. But just at its base, there is a godly sorrow, mourning, and there is a worldly sorrow or mourning. The one that comes from God will bring life as hard as it might be. Uh, God's comfort for mourning in our sin is huge. Um, I think Paul goes on, Romans, Romans 8, I love this. I hope you're familiar with this passage. I love this passage, Romans 8.1. He's gone through this whole thing talking about what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to have a spirit? What does it mean to be righteous and to be made righteous through Christ? And he says this, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Could you just stop for a second? <laughs> Could you own that? There is no condemnation. It's done. He died for it already. The victory is there. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, through his death, his burial, his resurrection, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean, hey, I've said the prayer, I asked Jesus into my heart, but I still sin. Did I miss it? No. No. 
But what it means is the sin that you've committed, the sin that you're committing now, the sin you're going to commit tomorrow, has been covered by Christ on the cross. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. I don't have to live in the worldly version of sorrow and guilt and shame. I don't mourn because I am condemned and unloved and worthless and because I've got to keep pleasing God. I mourn my sin because I realize Christ already paid the price for it. Why do I keep choosing to go back into a place of captivity? Why do I keep choosing death when Christ has already given me life? Do you see the difference? Man, I hope I'm making sense. Holy Spirit, help us. This is huge. More in sin because we realize we're not living in the love and freedom of Christ that he's already secured. In fact, I think the more we realize the truth of that first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, the more we come to a place where we go, yeah, that's me. The more we begin to see Holy Spirit conviction as a good thing and we begin to welcome it. That sounds crazy, but it's so true. Have you owned the sin? Have you grieved over the sin and found the comfort of his Holy Spirit before? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't come into those places and go, see, I told you so. How dare you? I can't believe it. And then the next week, hey, I know you confessed that, but man, you're still messed up. That's actually called the devil, my friends. When the Holy Spirit comes in, it's all the grace. You've, sinned the, the, you've done that before, right? Have you ever had to confess something to someone and they just held it over you? It's like, man, I think I did the right thing. I just feel really gross, though. Have you confessed to someone who was actually gracious to you? Said, Done. Awesome. Let's move forward. This is the Holy Spirit. This is Christ. There is a godly sorrow that leads to life, and there is a worldly sorrow that leads to death. This is where we experience that. And so now, as I get into areas of my life that are out of line with Christ and his commands, I'm finding it's getting easier and easier to go, okay, I got to say it out loud because I've experienced the grace and I've experienced the comfort that comes when we own it. It's like, why would I keep living in this place of darkness and hiddenness when I got a whole world of freedom sitting right here. Do we mourn our sin? I got to move on. Second way we understand this is those who mourn loss. Typically referring to death, and that's definitely one of the biggest pieces that this encompasses. I find it interesting though, 
among most of the scholars and even my own mentors, no one ever addresses this side of mourning. Almost all the scholars that I look into and study, they're all like, yes, mourning sin. I wonder what that says about us. We should mourn sin. That is what Jesus is talking about. But why wouldn't it also cover loss? Loss is also the result of sin. Think about that. It might not be sin that you personally have committed. The larger sin that entered our world through Adam and Eve created separation from God. The greatest loss ever. Right? He is our source of life. He is our source of shalom, peace, completeness, wholeness, all the stuff we're looking for. And now this is going to sound really stupid, and, and I, I don't want to sound patronizing, but I think it's important to say, do you realize that before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no such thing as death or loss? Like, think that through for a second. If they would not have chosen to go find their shalom somewhere outside of God, Adam and Eve would still be alive. Like, have you ever thought about that before? Like, that kind of blows my mind a little bit. Don't think about it too long. That was the original plan. But that original sin, which before you give them a hard time, if you were there, Who's to say you and I wouldn't be them? But that original sin created a loss and brokenness on every single level. Every level. First and foremost with God himself, the source of life. And then that just trickled out to everything else. A loss and a brokenness in connection to myself. I mean, you feel that, don't you? You feel the battles internally? A loss of relationship with everybody else around me. And the ultimate loss, loss of life itself. And as Tosh said so well earlier, it's not just loss of life. It's lost in so many different ways. You lost a job and all that that represents loss of relationship, loss of dreams, loss of the dream of particular relationships, maybe children. Guys, catch this. Even the holy dreams, the righteous dreams, the good dreams that are from God himself. This world is broken. We are broken and we experience loss every day as a result. And it's only human to avoid the negative emotions that come with that. So don't beat yourself up too hard. It's kind of part of the brokenness is like, why would I ever enter into negative emotions? That sounds crazy. So we put our head in the sand. We divert our attention. We make up things. We do everything we can to go around it. And I want you to catch Jesus. I want me to catch Jesus. 
You will not find life ignoring this reality that life is full of loss. And I want you to catch the other point here, and this is true for whether it's mourning sin or mourning loss. There is no comfort if we are unwilling to mourn. We don't get to the comfort bit by going around the mourning bit. That's tough. That's really tough. But this is the way of Christ. Why do we struggle so much with this concept of mourning, lamenting as followers of Christ when the Christ we follow told us to do it? Catch that? I think we're afraid if we embrace the feelings, we'll never recover from them. Maybe we're afraid if we embrace the feelings, we'll be weak. Maybe we're afraid if we embrace the feelings, we'll betray God. And we see mourning as like a lack of faith somehow. But Jesus told us to do it. Happy is the disciple of Christ who recognizes that mourning and lamenting loss are gifts from God. Wow, is that backwards? And Jesus is telling us, don't stick your head in the sand and ignore reality. If you ignore this reality, it's going to lead to more hurt and more loss. To mourn and to lament loss is actually a subtle but powerful expression of faith. Have you ever thought about that? Because I'm coming to God going, why? (laughs) Why? But I'm here, God. Because I know everywhere else but you is not going to give me the answer. So I'm here. And I might not get the answer I'm looking for, but I might get you. Your presence. Your comfort. A peace that can't be put into words. God will comfort those who mourn. He will restore their happiness and he will console. And all of these blessings have a present and future understanding. I just want to make that clear. It's called the already not yet of God's kingdom. There is a comfort for loss. There is a comfort for sin right now. But there is a complete comfort that is coming one day when Christ returns. The day, 1 Thessalonians 4, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Amen? That's why John, inspired by the Spirit, says in Revelation 7, in that day, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. How about you? Has the Holy Spirit been calling you to a time of mourning? And have you been pushing away? Have you been diverting? Have you been ignoring? 
Maybe the Spirit's calling you to a time of mourning over a sin that I need to take seriously, that I need to weep over, that I need to recognize is holding me back. You catch that? You remember that time in your life, for those of you who have hit adulthood, where you actually went back to your parents and said, thank you for not giving me all the food that I asked for as a kid. Thank you for not letting me watch all the TV that I asked for or the particular shows I wanted to watch or that one movie. Thank you. I thought you were trying to rob my joy. You were actually trying to save it. Are we ready to go to that place? Maybe the Holy Spirit is calling you to acknowledge a deep loss that you're struggling with. I wonder which area of mourning do you most avoid? Do you have a fear of facing your sin? Do you have a fear of facing difficult emotions and feelings? Maybe all of the above? Please hear Jesus afresh. Mourning and grieving and entering into these difficult places is the path to comfort. It's the only path. Healing and freedom and peace. Would you just join me in prayer? Uh, Our team's going to come back. They're going to play even as we leave today, but I just want to give you a moment as Tosh has already drawn us into to continue that prayer. Would you just sit quietly for just a moment? And would you let the Spirit speak to you? Is there something particular he's drawing you into? Maybe you already know what it is and you can't even admit it to yourself. Would you just take a moment and in your will, would you surrender to his and believe that if you actually give in to that place, he's going to meet you there? Would you just do that?